Well, brothers and sisters, last week we looked at why the Son is better than the angels and, and how that means that we can trust him because of who he is. We looked at how the Son is the one that the angels work for, and that means he's better than the angels. We looked at how the message delivered by angels, the message delivered by angels is one way the old, or Hebrews is talking about the Old Testament. It's one way Hebrews is talking about the law of Moses. We looked at how the message delivered by angels taught us about Christ. The message delivered by angels taught us about Christ during the time that it was covenantally in force and during the time that it was the legally, legally binding administration that God was enforcing. And we looked at how the word of God, or the word that God enforces now is a better word. The word that God enforces now is a better word because it's a word from all three persons of the Trinity. The Lord Jesus Christ began to speak it. The Father showed that he was the one who's enforcing this because he sent his Holy Spirit to bear witness that this is the word he's enforcing, this better word of the Son. And he showed it by preserving the apostles and sending the apostles to the ends of the world. So this is all three persons of the Trinity who have testified that the word of the Son is the better word that God's enforcing. And we looked at how the covenant that Christ mediates for us, the covenant that Christ sets up and, and intercedes for us with, it's a better message because it was delivered by someone better than the angels. So last week we looked at the message delivered by angels, and then we looked at the better message delivered by somebody who's better than the angels. And that's because not only is the deliverer of the message better, but the content of the message is better. It's better because it's the content of this covenant, this better word that the Son gives us is a full revelation of all that God was promising in the Old Testament. It was promised in the Old Testament, but now it's fully revealed. And, and one of the themes we've been looking at as we've looked at the book of Hebrews is the idea that the Old Testament was really this shadowy sketch of all that was promised in Christ. I don't know if you had this when we were singing the psalm, but have you noticed that that psalm gets clearer and clearer? Psalm 22 gets clearer and clearer who we're singing about as time goes on. Well, that's the thrust of the whole Bible. The Old Testament was always driving us to that clarity that God promised the Son, but now he sent him. And so now this week, we're going to look at, or we're going to continue to look at why the Son is better. The Son is better, and we're going to see that the Son is better because he's one of us. He's one of us, and that means he's the promised end of the story that God started. The son isn't an angel. He's better than angel because he's one of us. And that means that he can actually be our priest. He's one of us. He can be our priest, and that means he can really help us. So we're going to look at this in three points today. Three points. First, the son isn't an angel. We looked at that last week a little bit, but we'll look at it again. The son isn't an angel. Secondly, the son is one of us. The son is one of us. And third, he's the son who shares. So the son isn't an angel. The son is one of us. And he's the son who shares. So first, let's look at the son isn't an angel. Look with me again at verse 5. For it is not to angels that he subjected the world to come that we're talking about. Later on, he's going to say, God doesn't help the angels. We read that too. There are angels who owed God obedience just because of who they are. Angels are God's creatures, and God's their creator. So the angels owed him their obedience, and some of them fell. But the angels didn't get the covenant of works. 
So the angels never got a covenant from God where God came and promised, if you obey me, you get to fully enjoy me forever. The angels never got that. The angels weren't made to enjoy blessed life everlasting as a result of the finished work of Adam or the better Adam. Only people get that. Angels are holy and awesome beings, but God didn't make angels the way he made people. God made people in his image. God made people in his image, and that means that was an image with a purpose. Angels weren't made to love God, fully enjoy him forever, and know him perfectly. They're ministers who do his will, and that means angels work for people. Angels work for people because God created people in his image. God created man good and in his own image. That is in true righteousness and holiness that he might rightly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. God created people in his image. That image had a purpose and God made people in his own image so that they could rule over creation as a representative of him. So people, he put people in the garden to work it and to keep it. And he put them in there to expand the garden and have dominion over all creation. But we know that Adam and Eve fell. Adam and Eve fell. They lost the right to be in the garden. They lost the right to have that dominion. They lost the right to expand that garden, to know God and fully enjoy him forever. They lost the right to do that. The Belgic Confession puts it this way, when humanity was in honor, he did not understand it, and he did not recognize his excellence. But he subjected himself willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse, lending his ear to the word of the devil. For he transgressed the commandment of life, which he had received, and by his sin he separated himself from God, who was his true life, having corrupted his entire nature." So he made himself guilty and subject to physical and spiritual death, having become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways. He lost all his excellent gifts, which he had received from God, and he retained none of them, except for small traces, which are enough to make him inexcusable. In Adam, we're separated from God. We lost the right to do what we were made to do. Well, that's why we're bringing, but we're bringing this up for a reason. I'm not just bringing this up out of nowhere. Our passage today started with a quote from Psalm 8. Our passage today started with a quote from Psalm 8. And what does Psalm 8 say? Hebrews says it like this. Somebody testified somewhere, like the Old Testament kind of talked a lot about this. Somebody testified somewhere. What is man that you should think of him? Or the son of man that you should look over him? You set him a little below the angels. With glory and honor, you crowned him. You placed everything under his feet. <clears throat> over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking a lot about how Hebrews is really a handbook for us on how to read the Old Testament. It's a really great handbook for how Christians read the Old Testament. And, and what we see again in our passage this morning is that the whole Old Testament was really looking forward to this one plan of salvation in Christ. Adam's not there to teach us weird history. It is history, but he's not that's not the primary point of why we have Adam. We have Adam to point us to the better Adam. David's not there to teach us great moral lessons. He's there to point us to the greater son of David. And so scripture was always looking forward to the son of man that our psalm is talking about and that Hebrews is preaching from. 
He was always looking forward to the true and better Adam who could save his people and freely share the dominion he earned for us when he comes again. And so that's how Hebrews is teaching us how to read the Old Testament. He's he's saying that in uh, verses 8 and 9, the first part of verse 8 tells us Christ is the one. Jesus is the one to whom God subjected everything. And that means that Christ is the son of man Psalm 8 was talking about. He's the one that God promised would come and earn for us and restore to us eternal righteousness and life. And he's the one that God promised. And and so Christ isn't an angel. He's the one that the angels promised. The message delivered by angels promised Christ. And, And that means that even though we don't see that full realization, that full uh, experience of that dominion. Maybe it doesn't feel like we have the real thing. One of the things we've talked about a lot is the idea that they're trying to go back to the old time religion because they don't feel like they have the real thing. Maybe it doesn't feel like we have the real thing yet. We don't see it yet. We don't see a visible throne and a visible mercy seat. But even though we don't see and fully experience that dominion, What does our scripture say? It says, we see him. We see him. And the point of saying we see him is that God didn't send us an angel. He sent the son he promised. And he made that son a little lower than the angels so that he could win for us that dominion. And that means that even though we don't see or experience that dominion yet, it's already ours. It's already ours in him. On that last day when the Lord comes down and he burns everything with fire, and it's like the days of Noah where only those in Christ, only those who are in the true ark come in and are saved. And, and when, on that last day when Christ brings down the new creation from heaven, it's already ours. We don't fully experience it yet, but we will on that last day. And on that last day when we fully experience it, it's something that's really already ours in him right now. So verse five of our passage talks about the world to come. It's a world that's not here yet. It's a world to come, but we know it's coming. We have it. This is the fulfillment of all God promised and he's already done it and he's already given it to us in him. God made the promise and he kept that promise in Christ. And so right now, We know that new creation is really coming and it's really ours because we see him. We have Jesus. We have the real thing. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And he's not an angel. He's the one that was promised. That's good news though, because it means God's really going to help us in him. In Christ, we have the fulfillment of all God promised. We have what David was longing to see when God revealed this little picture to him. And and we see the promised son. God sent him to us. The father made the son a little while lower than than the angels. And he's not just a promise anymore. He's the reality. And so that brings us to point two. The son is one of us. He's not an angel. He's one of us. The son isn't an angel. The son is the promised son of man. The son's the one who restores to us and earns for us what we were meant to be. But the reason that the son can do that, the reason that he can earn for us and restore to us everything we were meant to be, the reason that he can share that dominion with us is because he's one of us. He's one of us. For it was appropriate with the regard to the one 
to, who, to whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to ordain the founder of their salvation through sufferings. See, that's really how we should take that word here. I know our Bibles say perfect, but really a better translation is ordain. Christ was ordained by becoming one of us through the sufferings of his humiliation. See, Hebrews is using, the reason I'm saying this, I'm, I'm not coming, out of, coming up with this from out of nowhere. The reason we should translate this ordain, or this word ordain, is because of what Hebrews is reading from. Hebrews is reading from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So when he uses the word that a lot of people are translating, make perfect, that's technically a good dictionary use of that word. It's, a, it's the way, you know, normal pagan Greeks would have spoken that word in their everyday use. So it's a good technical translation. But they're not translating that line in terms of the Old Testament connotations that the word here has. See, the way the Greek Old Testament was translating the Hebrew Bible was using this word to talk about a priest's ordination. So in the Hebrew Bible, in Exodus 29, verse 9, and Exodus 29, verses 29 through 35, and Leviticus 8, 33, and Leviticus 16, 32, and Numbers 3, 3, in the Hebrew Bible, when God's talking about ordaining priests, he used words, when we translate ordain, the words he really used translate more literally as filling the hand. God filled the hand of the priests. And, and so the ram that the priest ate, when the, when the priest killed a ram and ate it at his ordination, it was called the ram of fillings. When Aaron's sons were anointed in their father's clothes, it was, you were supposed to fill their hand in their dead father's clothes. And, and when the priests got set apart for service, they waited in the big tent for seven days until the days of their hands filling or hand fillings are complete. And so when the Jews were trying to, you know, before Christ came, when the Jews are translating the Old Testament into Greek and they're trying to get the full meaning of this, this phrase, filling the hand, to express pre-ordination, the closest word they found in the Greek was this idea of perfection. The priest's hand is being filled so that he can serve others. And, and so they translated it with this word that's in our text today, perfected. But the point of all this is that when Hebrews uses this word here, he's doing that in the context of how people had been reading the Old Testament for hundreds of years at that point. For a hundred years, people had been reading about the ordination of priests in the Old Testament. And they'd been reading about how the priest is ordained in this way. And they'd been reading and seeing this word that Hebrews is using for perfect. And so what Hebrews is saying here is you read in the law of Moses, this message delivered by angels. For years and years, you've read about how Israel was supposed to ordain its priests. I'm going to tell you about the better priest. I'm going to tell you how God ordained that better priest. God ordained that better priest by making him one of us. The biggest problem with human priests, right? The biggest problem with human priests is that they need to be made holy so that they can come before God and bring the people before God. But the biggest problem with the son is he's already before God. 
He has to be made human. We need a human to represent human interests. And so the Father made the Son human to ordain him to be our priest. He ordained him through sufferings. We need a human priest because we need a human to represent humans. I don't know business law that well, but my assumption is when I'm trying to buy a company, I can't just grab all my money, go out into the street, find the nearest guy on the sidewalk, hand him all my money and say, I guess I own Starbucks now. I have to talk to somebody from the company. I have to give my money to somebody from the company in order to buy the company. And and the same idea here is that we need a human to represent humans. We need our brother. We need a human to act on behalf of humans. And that's what verse 11 is getting at. Verse 11 says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. They all have one source. They got to be the same people. They all got to come from one source. They got to be the same group of people. If they're not brothers, if they're not the same people, then he can't represent them. And, And so... The priest making us holy before God through his sacrifice has to be one of us. The Old Testament priest offered sacrifices before God, but his sacrifices didn't work for anybody but his people. Sacrifices didn't work for the Gentiles. They worked for Jews. Well, we need a priest who's a human so that he can represent humans. And so when God the Father ordained the Son to bring us before him, he made him a human. The God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin. The Father ordained Christ the son, to be Jesus, our brother priest. We needed a human to represent us, so God made the son a person for us. And because of that duty, because of that ordination, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. When Christ spoke about himself in the Old Testament through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the mouth of the prophets and in David, Christ was not ashamed to call himself our brother This passage isn't telling us some sappy, feel-good nonsense about the universal brotherhood of man. It's it's actually saying the opposite thing. It's not that humans are so worthy because we're all brothers. It's actually that the son was worthy, and he was willing to become brother with dirty, filthy sinners so that he could become our priest and bring us back to God. But that brings us to the third point. Not only is the son not an angel, not only is the son one of us, But the son is the son who shares. The son is the son who shares. So the son can really help us because he's one of us, because he shares with us his brothers. Not only did he become one of us, not only is he not ashamed to call us brothers, not only was he the one who David was talking about, not only is he the one who obeyed on our behalf and in whom we ought to trust, but he's the one who says, I and the children God has given me. I and the children whom God has given me. Before God created the earth and the world, his son looked at him and said, Father, I will go. I'll go and be thus made man and born of a virgin. 
and I'm going to die for my sheep because I love them and I know them. They're the children you gave me. We're having a glimpse into what Christ said to the Father in eternity. He said he's going to go and be his children's mediator because God gave them to him. He's not ashamed to be ordained as our priest. He's not ashamed to be our brother. And he wasn't ashamed to suffer humiliation and be made human and be ordained through the sufferings of his humiliation. And he wasn't ashamed to be made a little lower than the angels. But not only that, he really saved us like he promised. He really saved us like he promised. God promised he would send his son and he sent him. And God promised that the son would be our better priest. And then he ordained him to be our better priest. And the son came and really helped us. God promised that this better priest would do what Adam failed to do. And what Old Testament priests weren't powerful enough to do. And what the angels couldn't do because they're not us. And the son came and became one of us. And he helped us. He saved us. He really did it. He fulfilled Psalm 8. He was made a little lower than the angels. He was ordained through sufferings. And that means that the son also fulfilled Psalm 8 by being crowned with glory and honor through the suffering of death because he tasted death for all of us. He shares flesh and blood with us. The son has a body. The Lord of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, took on eyes and armpits and, and knees and toes, whole body, He became one of us. And that means he's not only able to be our priest, but he has a body that could die. And he died for us to make propitiation for our sins. He paid the price that God's justice demands. See, the devil had the right to accuse us. The devil had the right to come before God and say, see, these people are covenant breakers. These people broke your law. They deserve death. Kill them. Give them the full force of justice. Every disobedience and transgression deserves and receives its just recompense. That's verse 2. The devil had the right to call God and say, God, you need to satisfy your justice on these people. But the son became human. And a human died on behalf of humans. And that means that the claims of God's justice are paid in full. The devil doesn't have the power to come before God and accuse you. He doesn't have the right to come and say, God, be just to them. Because in Christ, God became a human and died and satisfied the claims of God's justice. Humanity sinned against God and a human died. Christ is one of us and that means he can pay for us. Surely it is not angels that he helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham. If you have Christ, you have the son of God who became your brother. He shares in your flesh and blood. And he he became your high priest so that he could bring you before God's throne. And, And so that he could take away your guilt and shame and make you clean. And give you the right to be back in God's presence. To be everything you were made for. And there's no going back to anything else that pointed to him only. We have the reality of that promise in fullness. And so if you try to go back to the angels, instead of 
uh, or if you try to go back to the angels without the son, you're not actually moving towards help. The angels seem like they might be able to help. But if you move toward that message declared by the angels without the son, you're actually moving away from help. It's not the angels he helps. He helps the children of Abraham. God doesn't help the angels. He helps the sons of Abraham. And not only that, but by quoting Psalm 22, we sang all of Psalm 22, but Hebrews is quoting it and Christ fulfilled it. And that means that Christ didn't just experience the forsakenness of the father so that we might never be forsaken. Christ didn't just proclaim the way to come back to the father but Christ actually expanded the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. The gospel isn't just for Palestinians anymore. It's for everyone who believes in Christ. The son's priesthood is the fulfillment of the promises God made to Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would make Abraham the father of many nations and and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. And that means that the son is the fulfillment of all that God was promising to the fathers in the Old Testament. The son is the fulfillment. He's the reality. He's He's what the message delivered by angels promised. And that means his priesthood really did something for us. And that's why we read verse one of chapter three. Christ's priesthood actually did something for us. Because the thing is, verse 1 of chapter 3 wraps up all that we've covered by telling us the point of what we're supposed to do with that information. It says, therefore, holy brothers. There's that word, brothers. He became our brother and he made us his holy brothers. Those who sanctified, those who are being made, or he who sanctifies, so he who makes holy, and those who are sanctified, all of one source. He became our brother. He made us holy. We can go before God. He made propitiation. We can go before God. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the high priest who shares your flesh and blood. Jesus is the one who shared the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he shares the victory that he won for us. But not only is he the high priest that God sent out, the better high priest who actually did something. He's the one who made his brothers holy. He made us holy. And he's made us people that share in a heavenly calling. And so the call as we leave today is a call we're going to look more at next week. Consider Jesus. He's the one, he's one of us. He made us clean. He actually did it. He's our brother who actually did it. He's our better priest. He proclaims the father to us. He proclaims his gospel to the ends of the earth. And he makes us people who are able to share in the call to be with him where he is. He's our brother who can really help. We were made for rest in him, so we are to rest in him. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.